Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Do you enjoy looking in the rear view mirror of your life? I do. I love thinking about the decisions I faced, the actions I took, and what those actions led to, whether positive or negative. This is one of the reasons I love social science. Just as we can look back in the field of personal or cultural history and see what decisions led to where we are today, we can actually look forward in an almost prophetic sense with the social sciences, and we can see what decisions will come out of what's happening in the culture today. In this lens, we can answer a vital question that's circulating in America right now. To whom do America's children belong? The parents or the state? When I was in grad school, we spent a lot of our time looking at how many of the issues we're facing in our culture were the result of parenting choices we had made as a society. Mel Levine, who was an expert in the last generation, would predict behavioral patterns for a generation based on how they were being parented. Cultural sweeps like the decline in discipline, the lack of maternal care, the rise of social media, all of these have significant implications for the home and as a result, of course, the future of our nation. Remembering, which is Looking in the rearview mirror from a cultural perspective is a great habit for us to develop because it helps us connect our decisions to an action. It helps us to see the power of responsibility. It helps us become powerfully and personally aware of the fact that ideas have consequences. Our actions influence the future. One of Melvin's famous points of research was that parents of the last generation spent a lot of their parenting time in highly structured group activities rather than saying like go outside and play. It's been a couple generations since we've heard go outside and play, right? Instead there was this very structured experience of play and Levine projected kind of culturally prophesied in a sense that the next generation would have difficulty thinking outside of the box that they'd be captive to groupthink that they wouldn't know what to do if they weren't given very clear and specific directions and we've seen this play out in the workplace with that generation when i was writing the book multi-generational marketplace i talked to many ceos who were super frustrated with younger workers because they didn't know how to, quote, lead with initiative. They didn't know how to find work to do on the job. They didn't know how to think outside the box. It's fascinating and sobering to see these cultural predictions come to life. Researchers from the generation following millennials, which is Gen Z, said that they uh, that there was this constant onslaught of things like selfie pressure, of the constant posting of their own faces on social media. And there was kind of this parallel rise of violent video gaming and a lack of parental connection, which we've talked about in previous shows. And because of that, researchers predicted that Gen Zs would exhibit a spirit of narcissism that was not balanced by empathy, which is a dangerous combination, as many researchers have noted. The youngest generation who's uh, coined alphas, they're born after 2010, a generation's about 15 years, are projected to be the most educated generation in the history of our nation, partly due to growing up with knowledge at their fingertips, right? And thankfully, thankfully, they are projected to define what, to redefine what 
education really looks like, what real education is, which I'm very excited about as an educator. They're predicted to be the largest generation in history. So listen, whoever educates them will literally rule the culture through the norms, values, preferences, and convictions that are implanted in that generation. You tracking with me here? Researchers Mark McCrindle and Ashley Fell have noted that Alpha's adolescence is starting earlier. We've talked about that on past shows. Uh, they call it un or up aging. And, you know, we've talked about the synthetic foods, the socialized environment of hypersexuality. And at the same time, you have these markers of adulthood, like marriage, that are being delayed. We talked about those with our George Barna studies, um, even for the current generation, Gen Z's. But McCrindle predicts that alphas will be physically, socially, psychologically, educationally, and commercially sophisticated well beyond their years. Now, we have to remember with caution that they won't necessarily have the emotional maturity to balance out that sophisticated palate, um, but they have more access to technology, to more external influences outside the home than any generation in history. So parents, beware, right? This generation is poised for being influenced and for influencing the larger culture in a way that no previous generation in history could have imagined. Now, we've talked in past shows about the impact that screens have on children from shorter attention spans to that mean and scary worldview. Remember, the collective body of research suggests that no screen time for ages zero to two, and then no more than two hours of screen time a day for ages two to adults. When we look around at the current generation, this massive swath of 56 million students that are being swept away by the indoctrination of public school systems. And even more recently, we see this generation captive to anxiety and fear. What are the influences collectively that are going to affect the cultural psyche, the behaviors, the beliefs of the next generation? How is that going to play out for us in the home and the marketplace? Last week, we talked about some fascinating theories of psychosocial development. At least I think they're fascinating. Do you remember Eric Erickson? We looked at the vital role that parents and grandparents play in the development of healthy socialization in a child's life. We've talked before about social sciences, hard sciences, how these underscore the plans and the processes of the kingdom of God. When we see, for example, a rise in cortisol, which is what happens as a physiological demonstration of stress when a preschool, a toddler's body, when that child is away from non, is in non-maternal care, you know, away from the mother, that tells us something, right? It tells us, oh, surprise, the child needs his mother. (laughs) Not too complicated, right? Science literally answers some of these sociological questions for us. What's God's design for marriage? It's answered in biology. The definition of a species is the ability to procreate, right? We can see God's fingerprints throughout all of the scientific realm. When we think about the newness of the virtual world and its impact on social depth and narcissism, like we're talking about later, it's it's created this world where many people have lost their grip on social skills. They've, uh, they've kind of adapted these inappropriate levels of disclosure we've seen in the classroom over the last decade. Many of them are simply spinning out filament in the air to cite Wordsworth, poetic, Wordsworth's poetic reference. And they're hoping that some ethereal concept, some, quote, gossamer thread will cling somehow to someone and a connection will be forged. We're beginning to see young people who are growing less capable at the subtle arts of things like listening, turn-taking, nonverbal communication in general. 
The rapidity with which some of them are developing, quote, true friends in the online realm fosters this surge of disturbing behaviors like disclosing personal information far more readily than is deemed really healthy in a relationship. We have a podcast on that a few weeks back if you want to check that one out, too. In one of my favorite developmentalists uh, puts it this way, speech is an expression of the process of becoming aware. And if that's true, then learning how, why and when to speak is a vital component of the process of development and a component of our health as individuals and as a culture. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes of the Christian's transformation, which begins with the renewal of our mind and allows us to discern what is the will of God, what he says is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul goes on to describe the marks of the true Christian. He says, showing genuine love, holding fast to what is good, being fervent in spirit, (laughs) being fervent in great contrast to the emo culture, driving a spirit of depression through music and dress in today's generation, but I digress, Uh, outdoing one another in honor, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation. These are part of what Paul calls the believer's reasonable service, Uh, logikos, which is where we get the word logic. So this list of our, quote, logical service is a great litmus test for us And for our children's heart condition, do our children love, serve, honor? Is it evidenced in the way that they treat other people? Can they be patient and hopeful as evidenced in the measure of self-control and discipline in their circumstances? Or is at least there some processing in that direction? Is there some movement toward health in these arenas? I mean, think about how many significant crises could be readily avoided today if people simply learn to speak with honor and to utilize a little self-control, right? <laughs> Again, this is further evidence for the vital role that parents play in the development and discipleship of the next generation. Kids don't learn these traits from their peers. Oh my gosh, if you found a peer that teaches those traits Let's interview them on the show. Come on now. They don't learn them in a secular indoctrination center. The beginning of wisdom, its very starting point, Proverbs tells us, is the fear of the Lord. Now, children will undoubtedly learn mockery of the laws of the Lord in California's public schools, and they'll learn oppression of the truth of God's word. But my friends, they will not learn the fear of the Lord in centers that are linked with an aggressive secular agenda. I know there's a push in some circles to try to mend them, but as you'll hear from a tremendously insightful lawyer in just a moment, the public school system is actually operating outside of its jurisdiction. Christian parents are called to rise up and carry the mantle. I would say our time and energy would be better spent not mending them, but ending them. Newfield and Matei write in one of my all-time favorite parenting books, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. They write about the parental dynamic and how when it's correctly applied, it literally answers some of life's most profound questions about child rearing. Remember our Romans 120 model that God's character, his nature, is evidenced in the creation that he designed. Newfield and Matei, who are international experts on child development, show in their very well-researched work, that peer orientation undermines. It literally sabotages parenting. They call it parental impotence. And we see it all around us today, where kids are being driven by their scholastic peer groups, like little rebellious mini gangs that are bent on selfishness and destruction. Peer orientation has to be dethroned for the natural process of parenting to be effective. And the public school system 
elevates peer orientation. Think about the model versus the home or parent-directed model. And yet the government keeps pushing for control. If you haven't looked at the work and the research of parentalrights.org to see firsthand some of the erosions of parent rights today in America and medicine and government education, definitely check them out. Maybe you've heard the echo of that rhetorical question that surfaces in America today. Whose children are they? In other words, what agencies have the right to make decisions for the next generation? Do America's children belong to the parents or to the state? I hope you know the answer to that question, but we're definitely going to unpack it. When we look at the predictive power of the next generation, he who holds the gold makes the rules. And just as Hitler intentionally designed programs like Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls to train up a generation, indoctrinating them in the Nazi regime. I mean, read the history of how Hitler banned the Boy Scouts, forced Scouts to join Hitler Youth so he could control what they learned. In the 1930s, the Nazi state abolished all youth groups in Germany. By 1939, 82% of the 10 to 18-year-olds belonged to Hitler Youth. And we saw the steady rise over 10 years. And one of the most chilling historical citations about these groups is um, that they were set up to, quote, dismantle existing social structures and traditions and to impose conformity. Sound familiar? If you listen to my interview with Kevin McGarry, you heard the dramatic indoctrination of of critical race theory sweeping the schools, the rewriting of history, the pulling up of traditions, the toppling of statues. Listen, parents, 90% of students in America attend secular public schools. Think about the stats I just gave you on Hitler Youth. Come on. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The power is in the hand of the educator. If we go back to Plato's question for every civilization throughout all time, who is teaching the children and what are they being taught? You know, Christians have to be mindful of the fact that schools, especially in overtly liberal states like California, are literally inculcating values that will drive the future of our nation. And lest we think that private schools are faring much better, let's go back to the research by Ken Ham and Britt Beamer. We talked about a few weeks ago on how few Christian schools are actually making Christian disciples. My friends at the Nehemiah Institute have devised this test called PEERS, and it assesses a biblical worldview in the areas of politics, education, economics, religion, and society. And the the founder of the Institute, Dan Smithwick, I talked to him, and he told me that less than 20% of Christian schools he tests in the United States have teachers with a biblical worldview. Did you hear that? Now, thankfully, his test also provides opportunities for training so we can shore up those worldview issues for teachers who've come out of the public system and haven't yet dealt with their own indoctrination prior to entering a teaching contract at a Christian school. In our work at Awaken Academy in Chula Vista Christian University, we're partnering with the Nehemiah Institute. And I highly recommend Dan's peers assessment. We're giving it to all our teachers to any listeners who are thinking about starting your own private Christian school or homeschool program. And remember, if you're local to San Diego, part of my mission as the president of CVCU is helping San Diego churches rescue their students from CA's public indoctrination centers. DM me for details on how you can get a center or school started at your church right now. Lev Vygotsky was a Russian author and theorist who contributed a great deal to our understanding of human development. Now, his writings were suppressed by the Russian government during his lifetime. Sound familiar? And many of his ideas have begun just in recent years to make a resurgence. Vygotsky believed that the most effective learning environment for children was built on what he called scaffolding, where a parent or older sibling 
provides an apprenticeship model that challenges the child while still providing some support or scaffolding. And this creates an environment that gives the child attainable challenges. So we look up to someone who's a little older than us and we see, I can do this. He called this, pro- he called this process the zone of proximal development. That word proximal means close proximity. We talked about proximal zones with Edward Hall uh, a few episodes back. And we can see this process as mentorship, discipleship. Family is our closest proximal zone, right? Again, back to social science and the Romans 120 model. Another favorite researcher of mine, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, is famous for a theory he called ecological systems theory, which underscores the need for intergenerational mentoring as a primary influence in healthy human development. In one of his books, which was called Two Worlds of Childhood, U.S. and USSR, you know, that was back in the 70s where USSR was a thing. Uh, But he said children need people in order to become human. It's primarily thought through observing, playing and working with others older with others older and younger than himself that a child discovers both what he can do and who he can become he develops both his ability and his identity hence listen to this to relegate children to a world of their own is to deprive them of their humanity and ourselves as well this is one of the core reasons we utilize a one room schoolhouse model in much of our work at awaken academy because children need older models with like minded values who will show them what the next phase of life can look like it's an inspiration we need them in adulthood too i've said many times on the show we need to be reaching up to someone 10 years older than us and reaching down to mentor someone 10 years younger bronfenbrenner says development it turns out occurs through a process of progressively more complex exchange kind of like what lev Vygotsky said, between a child and somebody else. Listen, he says, especially somebody who's crazy about that child. Bronfenbrenner's ideologies remind us that children don't develop into healthy young adults by being trained by television or parented by peers. They need the love and nurture of a parent to reach their full potential. Later, Bronfenbrenner said that in today's world, Parents find themselves at the mercy of a society, listen to this, which imposes pressures and priorities that allow neither time nor place for meaningful activities and relations between children and adults. He says they downgrade the role of parents and the functions of parenthood. Is that what's happening around us right now? And he says this prevents the parent from doing things he wants to do as a guide, friend, and companion to his children. Now, this was the 70s. Look how much more, 1970s. Look how much more this is happening right now. Bronfenbrenner believed that the age segregation in our society was one of the greatest detriments to children. And he said it created this sense of isolation from the world's work. Children were literally disconnected. In the past, they were part of the family business. But today, children have a very muddled sense of what the adult world of work consists of. And Bronfenbrenner believed this created kind of this unhealthy disconnect from the reality of the future. He also said that Children are disconnected from the adult responsibilities of caring for children. In his book, The Ecology of Human Development, written in 1979, he said, it's now possible for a person who's 18 years old to graduate from high school, college, and university without ever having cared for or even held a baby, without ever having comforted or assisted another human being who needed help. Listen to this quote. He said, no society can long sustain itself unless its members have learned the sensitivities, motivations, and skills involved in assisting and caring for other human beings. That is essentially the heart of the family. And yet everywhere we look, there's this force attempting to undermine the system of family, this battle for control. 
In our current state of educational affairs, parents' rights end at the public school door. This is why parents walked in their kids' bedrooms and heard teachers on Zoom saying, parents are not welcome here, get out. What? (laughs) Our friends at rescueyourchild.com are doing some impassioned research on the anti-parent, anti-Christian philosophies being perpetuated in the secular system. Definitely check them out. And you've no doubt heard things like the 50 550 planned parenthood clinics that are now conveniently located in the grounds of public school classrooms in Los Angeles County with the goal, as the Washington Post notes, listen to this, of quote, training hundreds of teens to be peer advocates to their classrooms. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. You've heard of, of course, the resurgence and redefinition of racism, of the Marxist teachings. We've talked about those on the show before. Philosophies that are determined to divide, to create this victim and oppressor mindset from which no one can escape. And of course, this doesn't even begin to address the hypersexualized, overtly anti-Christian culture that sprouted up in the system. There are now over a dozen new sexual agendas targeting children in the public school just over the last few years. In fact, many parents I talk to who are breaking free of the public school system say that one of the most significant pressures their children were facing was actually not the teachers because they knew that pressure was coming. What they weren't prepared for was the level of powerful peer pressure children faced from other students. There's a term in social sciences called third-person syndrome. It's this vantage point that impacts us at every stage of life, a kind of self-protective mechanism that makes us think other people are vulnerable to something, but we are somehow above vulnerability. We have this sense that we and our children are above the level of being influenced by those around us. But honestly, this is naivety at best and arrogance at worst. The Bible tells us that we are absolutely influenced by the company we keep. So whatever the age, we have to be aware of that power of influence. We have to place ourselves in close proximity to relationships that will help our children live in a parent-directed model rather than a peer-directed model. In the current system, the battle for control is clear. This concept, whose children are they? This rhetorical question. Parents are awakening to the ludicrous nature of this rhetorical question. Our children don't belong to the state. They belong to the parent. And as a parent, you have God-given rights and responsibilities to raise, educate, and train up your children to transmit the truth of God's word to the next generation. As parents, we cannot afford to delegate away our rights and responsibilities to strangers who don't have the same best interests in mind for our children. We can't outsource them any longer. In his powerhouse book, Abolition, lawyer Kevin Novak explains the basis of law and jurisdiction in a manner that only a scholarly mind can. After a lengthy and convincing argument on the grounds for educational control, he says this, quote, the civil government has no right to operate a school system because the civil government has no jurisdiction over the heart and mind. The term jurisdiction is comprised of the prefix juris, Latin for law, and the suffix diction, Latin for speak. Thus, jurisdiction means to speak law. And he says a failure to teach this principle of governance will prove to be, quote, catastrophic to the gospel because in each successive generation, more and more of the power is shifted to government and away from the family. The growth of civil government lessens the growth of family government, which impacts the transmission of the gospel. As Novak says, quote, the gospel suffers because humanists are then in the position to utilize their physical sword to advance their ideologies through civil government. And naturally, those humanistic government actors are not facilitating the gospel, but hindering it. 
As you probably heard me say all too often, here in America, we've allowed the Great Commission to be outlawed on our watch. I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought this would turn around without some heavy lifting on our end. We really need to make an honest assessment of where we are as a country, as a church, as a family. Years ago, I heard visionary homeschool pioneer Dr. Michael Ferris predict three waves that would come against the parent-directed education movement. The first two were unfounded and have been disproved. Naysayers said homeschoolers would be ignorant and unsocialized, but the stats now show, of course, that they're the most emotionally mature, identity-secure, academically-equipped, civically-engaged group of students. But the third wave, that the educational system, parent-directed education, was a threat to the secular state because it is the most effective process for transmitting our values. And in this case, those values are the gospel and making disciples. Well, that part is true. When we make the sacrifice to invest into our children academically, socially, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we will reap a harvest. God's word will not come back void. It will accomplish his desire. He's right now, even now, watching over his word to perform it, both in our generation and in the one to come. What seeds are we planting today toward that future harvest? Remember, the two youngest generations have incredible cultural power at their fingertips. And as we saw today, alphas will be one of the largest generations ever from a global perspective. So whoever educates them will literally rule the culture through the norms, values, preferences, and convictions that are implanted in them. They are poised for being influenced and for influencing in a way that none of us in previous generations could have imagined. And as believers, We must heed the times, the signs, the seasons, and take an active role in discipling the next generation. It is our responsibility to make the needed sacrifices right now to steward and guide the next generation of champions for the kingdom of God. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.